Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Nyla Murray. Nyla is a senior research scientist and group lead in the Computer Vision Group at Naver Labs Europe. Nyla, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks so much, Sam. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you on as well. And before we jump into the kind of heart of the conversation, I'd like to have the audience get to know you a little bit. You did your PhD in Barcelona, Spain. Tell us about your focus there. Sure. So I did my PhD at uh, the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona, so specifically in the Computer Vision Center in Barcelona. And so the, the work I did there was very focused on, um, on subjective vision. So this is the problem of being able to model um, subjective properties of human vision. So that's things like, uh, in particular, I was focused on uh, visual attention, in particular, bottom-up attention, or what we might call saliency. So this is really understanding if you're given some kind of, if a, if, a, if an individual is presented with a visual stimulus, let's say an image or a video, um, how can we model um, which regions of that visual stimulus would attract the user's attention? And then we can have various degrees of attention that, that we can predict. Uh, so that was one focus of my research during my PhD. Another focus was on uh, visual aesthetics. This is another let's say, subjective visual experience where you're trying to model or at least trying to understand or predict, you know, to what degree would a specific visual stimulus, let's say an image or a video, be considered uh, visually appealing to someone. And so you can ha consider different ways of approaching that. Um, there are some that are, let's say, some approaches that are a bit more um, in the computational neuroscience perspective, um, really taking a sort of um, biologically inspired approach. And I did investigate that to some degree. Um, and they're also uh, much more data-driven approaches. So things that would be, um, you know, using machine learning techniques. So I, I investigated both, both aspects during my PhD. And during your PhD, you did a stint with a Xerox research lab in Europe. You went there after your PhD, and uh, without leaving, you ended up at Naver Labs Europe. <laughs> Tell us about that whole story. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so it was a very interesting time. So in fact, I was a visiting researcher at Xerox Research Center Europe, XRCE, uh, for those in the know, uh, during my PhD. So actually, I was visiting them and collaborating with them as a PhD student. So after my PhD, um, you know, I had a great time at XRCE, and so I decided to, to stay on as a research scientist. And eventually, I, I started leading the computer vision team at XRCE. And uh, at a certain point last year, um, Xerox decided to, um, uh, to, to transition, and uh, you know, we were looking for acquirers for the lab. And so, um, Naver Labs... And so I can get in a little bit into what, you know, who, who are we as Naver Labs. Naver Labs um, acquired us eventually, acquired uh, XRCE. And so now XRCE is now known as NE, NLE or Naver Labs Europe. And so the institute is the same, the people are the same, but now we're, um, we're under the, the umbrella of our new home, which is Naver Labs. And Naver Labs does what? Okay, so this is like an onion and an onion story. Um, so uh, let me start off with Naver Corporation. So our parent company is Naver Corporation, and this is a South Korean internet technology company. We're a very dominant company in South Korea and then on, and for different services in other parts of, of South and Southeast Asia and East Asia. Um, so we're very well known. Um, we're very dominant in search, for example, in web search and mobile search 
in, in South Korea, and then we have many other services. We have a lot of internet and web services for things like um, for translation, for navigation, for maps, for blogging. We have more than 100 services um, that we provide over the web, over the internet, over, over mobile phones. We also um, we own Line Corporation, for example, which is a very popular messaging app as well. So this is Naval Corporation. And so Naval Labs is actually a spin-off of Naval Corporation. And so Naval Labs, what we are is um, we're a company with a vision of ambient intelligence. So what this means is we are interested in having services that are intelligent and that um, that take context into, into account when it's deciding how to best provide some kind of service. So that may mean understanding where you are, understanding what you're doing, and using that to provide you different services related to, for example, mobility or entertainment or communications, things like that. So that's the vision of Naval Labs. Um, and as a result of that, we do a lot of research on things like of computer vision, natural language processing, uh, you know, recommendation systems, a lot of machine learning tasks in general, um, and also applications like robotics, autonomous driving, and and quite a few other things. You recently returned from the deep learning in DABA, and in fact, this interview will be published as part of our deep learning in DABA series, where you presented a an overview, a tutorial on CNNs. I'm curious about the your experience at the Indaba. Had you been to uh, the Indaba event previously? And uh, you know, tell me a little bit about your experience there. Sure. So um, I hadn't been previously. As far as I understand, the first this is the second edition of the Deep Learning Indaba, and I wasn't there last year. Um, I was really happy to be invited to give uh, to give this overview of convolutional models. And um, I have to say it was really a great experience, you know, in all dimensions. So in terms of the organization, it was great. In terms of the uh, the group of students and participants that the organizers put together, they were really a very engaged, motivated audience. Um, I was a bit, you never know when you're giving a talk how engaged the audience is going to be. Um, you know, we got so many questions uh, during the talk, which is always great. Um, after the talk, <laughs> a lot of questions as well. A lot of students coming up to me afterwards saying, oh, you know, I saw this, you, you spoke about this specific kind of flavor of a confnet. Could Do you think it could be used in my case? Here's what I'm trying to do. So people are really, really willing to explain, to describe their problems, to look for advice, to ask questions, to share knowledge. So I thought the the general spirit of of, of the DLN DABA was, was great. It was really... I think in the best spirit of conferences, in the sense that people are really there to to share knowledge and to um, to find collaborations and things like that. So it, it was a very nice spirit. Um, I think I also learned a lot listening to some of the other talks. They were great talks by people like Katya Hoffman and David Silver and others, many others, um, where I learned quite a bit of stuff myself too. So so in, in all in all, it was it was really wonderful. Oh, fantastic! Uh, and so your recent work has been focused on. Uh, Areas like visual attention and uh, learning different representations for visual search. Let's dive into uh, some of your uh, recent research. Visual attention. When we talk about visual attention, is it related at all to, you know, we talk about attention within models. Uh, (laughs) What are the connections between those or is it just a name collision? Sure. So that's a great question. Um, <laughs> there's, I would say there's an intersection, but it's not a complete overlap. So, so visual attention has a very specific meaning um, in the neuroscience community and in other communities, right? It's not something that um, computer vision people came up with. Um, 
but there is some overlap. Um, basically, when I say visual attention, um, in the context I'm, I'm, of my research, what I really mean is um, human attention that's, um, let's say, that's given or that's a result of the human visual system. And, and you can think of even higher up visual processes and, and, and cognitive processes. The idea being that, uh, so for example, to give you a typical setup, in terms of what we're trying to model, let's say, for example, that you sit a human, you sit somebody in front of like a, like a, a computer screen, you show them uh, an image, and then you have an eye tracker. And the eye tracker is tracking um, exactly where, you know, fixations are landing on, on that image, right? Mm -hmm. And the goal of a, of a visual attention model will be to predict that, to be able to say, given this image, I think that let's say the average person, because of course there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into this, but the average person would pay more attention to this part or to that part. Or I, oh, I think that part's going to gather a fair bit of attention, or this is the degree to which I think it would have that amount of attention. So that's what I mean when I say visual attention, and that's the type of research I did. But in a lot of CNNs now, and let's say general deep learning models, um, it's used in a very similar sense. The idea being that but it's not necessarily human driven, right? It's basically saying, what does the algorithm, um, what does the model basically think needs to be attended to um, in whatever stimulus you're talking about? And that can be a visual stimulus, it can be textual data, it can be many other things. So it's not necessarily human driven, but the, the concept is, is similar in the sense that there's a lot of information. Um, what information is relevant for me to make whatever decision I'm trying to make? Why do we want to study visual attention? Yeah, you could step back and, and think about it as, you know, more like a bug than a feature or a limitation than a feature, <laughs> right? It's like we as humans have this limited ability to, uh, to focus due to a variety of kind of neurophysical, uh, you know, limitations, the way we're wired, but a computer could do more, right? Why do we need to worry about focusing on a specific part of an image? You could say that, but I actually think that um, visual attention is 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 kind of a miracle. I wouldn't say it's a miracle, but it's it's actually a very wonderful feature of the human, let's say, human cognition, in the sense that there is a vast amount of information that we're taking in every time we just look around us, right? Every time we look around us, every time we see. If you think of if you think of the amount of data that you need to store to just to store like an hour of video and just imagine that we're just con we're just like uh, having this um, be input into our, our eyes um, constantly as you know, when we're awake and when we're looking around, there's a lot of information. And it's not rather than think that, OK, it'd be great if we could use all of this. Frankly, I mean, it's very smart for our, our visual system to say a lot of this is not even necessary. Why would I waste my time? Why would I have like waste my the energy of my brain? to process this stuff that's not even needed for whatever kind of task I'm trying to do. You know, the human brain is very computationally efficient. And that's something that we struggle a lot with in computation, especially in deep learning right now. And so I think it's actually something very fascinating and something that we would love to be able to replicate in, you know, in like, let's say machines and in, in com computer systems as well. So, so that's just to start off with. I really think, I find it really fascinating the ability we have to be able to really attend to things that, that matter. Um, so that's one reason why I think it's interesting, just for because if we could replicate that, I think it would service a lot of computational power and many other things, right? Um, we know that right now, for example, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues with with you know environmental concerns, for example, like how do you cool all these like GPUs that we're all using and things like this. So if we could manage to replicate that, that'd actually be pretty cool. Um, and then, so another reason we're interested in it is just for for purely, let's say, scientific purpose to really understand how the brain works. 
So that's one thing. And actually, a lot of this research came out of the neuroscience community, right? Like people who really want to understand how does your brain work? That's just a fundamental question. And attention is a big part of that. Not just visual attention, but also attention to, to audio signals. And then also just from, from for computational reasons, I just gave you a few, right? So it's it's really good for um, for compression purposes and for just genuine, gen, genuine, general computational efficiency. Can you scope out the, the landscape of uh, visual attention? What's the research trajectory been in this field over time? It, it sounds like it's been something we've been looking at uh, for a long time from the perspective of multiple disciplines. How is our understanding of how to replicate visual attention in machines evolved over time? Sure. So, yeah, I can try to take you through you know, a very brief overview. So, visual attention, let's say computational models have been around for, for many, many decades. Um, there are some very seminal ones. Um, so, for example, there's one by, uh, by Treisman et al., which is related to, to what we call feature integration theory. And then from there, there have been some works by, um, by professors such as Laurent Etty and a lot of his students who've worked on things like really taking an image and trying to decompose that image into um, some sort of compressed representation. The idea being that if you have an image, a lot of, there's a lot of redundancy in images, right? We all know that. So images can be very highly compressed. And anybody who's used you know, JPEG compression or any other types of compression techniques know that. And the idea is that um, there's been a long history of work thinking about the fact that um, to understand visual attention, we have to think about what can be compressed and what cannot be in order to retain the same information in the image. So that's been like a big theme throughout a lot of visual attention research. Um, in, in early days, let's say a lot of things was very, very much focused on um, trying to, to, to come up with, let's say from first principles, first principles of neuroscience um, about, for example, how the brain works, how the visual cortex works, how the primary cortex works, et cetera. Trying to, from that, come up with a model. More recently, people have gone into very much data-driven approaches. So by data-driven, I mean things like, um, you know, you have some sort of data set that you collect. So a typical data set that, that is used in this, in this field um, is a data set of images and corresponding fixations from different, different individuals, different viewers. And the, a data-driven approach would basically say, okay, I have some sort of model, and this model can be a deep learning model, it can be some other type of model, and I want to optimize this model such that it, it's able to predict um, as best as possible the, these fixations. So basically to give some sort of, um, uh, for example, a probability score um, for a given pixel, saying what's the probability that a fixation would land on that, on that pixel. So a lot of work on this field has used things like... Um, image decomposition methods, for example, using wavelet theory, using wavelet decompositions. Uh, more recently, it's gone, you know, mo a lot of the research has gone into deep learning. So, for example, some of the recent research that I did used um, a very generic, let's say, visual backbone, you can say, a visual front end. So, for example, a ResNet model. And then, for example, train the ResNet model uh, architecture with a final layer that gives you a prediction on a per pixel basis, saying, okay, given this image, what's the probability of this pixel being fixated upon? And so your specific work in this field, what uh, what were some of the papers that you've done in this area? So the first the first work I did on this, so this was before the, the deep learning era, if we can put it that way, was really based on um, uh, using a psychophysical model of vision. So this model was really a model that was was developed initially to predict 
um, color perception. So how do we perceive color in images? And then we adapted this model to, um, to predict visual attention. And more specifically, saliency. So maybe before I get into this, I can give a little bit of um, a distinction between the two things. So when we talk about visual attention, this is something that's an extremely complex, um, let's say, process in, in cognition. It involves many, let's say, what we might call low-level cues and also many top-down top cues. By that, what I mean is that typically when you're looking around you and you're paying attention to things, you have some sort of purpose in mind. So for example, you might be reading or you might be looking at a movie or you might be searching for something on your desk. And that impacts a lot where you look. So this is why it's very subjective. So there's another, there is a component of attention though that's, that's, called, that's been traditionally called saliency. And this is something that people call more bottom-up. So what that means is it's something that's more related to, um, to things like textures, like low-level textures and colors and things that um, aren't really related to the task at hand. So what I mean by that, for example, is even though you're, you're looking at your desk and you're trying to find something, if you, there are certain things that are just, um, let's say, fundamentally salient for lack of a better word um, in your desk so so there are many patterns that have been that have been found that that have this property and so this was more what I was focused on this aspect of really a bottom-up saliency or low-level saliency is it fair to draw this distinction along the lines of bottom-up or saliency is specific to the content of uh, let's say an image whereas top-down is more contextual or related to the goal of the observer or is that too simple? Yeah, yeah of... I think that's no. I, I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair distinction to make. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so we would say that, and this is why I think if you're trying to model attention, many people have started off trying to model what we call bottom up, bottom up or low level attention, because that's the sort of thing that's really, um, it's less task dependent, right? It's really sort of depends on just the fundamentals of the visual stimulus that you have, and so that way is a bit more. Um, there's a bit more continuity of that or coherence in between different viewers. When you start to get into things like looking at different tasks, it can be very subjective and very different. So your specific research was taking a uh, kind of a neurophysical model. Is that how you described it? Uh, so, approach? Right. Yeah. So that was my initial um, work on this, which took a, a psychophysical model um, and it attempted to modify it to, to better predict um, let's say, visual saliency, and partic in particular to predict uh, visual fixation, so eye fixations. Um, so what that meant is that you take a data set um, with these fixations that were, were recorded by different observers, and you try to really replicate that with your model. So later on, in, in more recent years, I've, um, I've looked at a more data-driven approach with some learning involved. So in this case, what we did was um, we really focused on, so this is work I did with... Um, with a student of mine, Samia Jetli, and also a colleague of mine, um, Nora Vig. And so for this work, we focused on really trying to understand what kind of um, objective functions would be appropriate to learn to learn a model of saliency. And so we, we modeled um, saliency as a probability distribution. So we said, okay, we want to really predict the probability of fixation. So we consider, um, we consider all our pixels in our image to be potential uh, fixations, and we try to we try to figure out okay what would be like the best objective function to learn to to train this model, and so we consider different ones. We we propose some new ones basically that we're trying to to really capture this property of probability. And, and, and so, what were the field of objective functions that you considered? So very much those related to um, 
to capturing differences between, or let's say to quantify differences between probability distributions. So there, so for example, we try things like um, like Kale divergences, um, Jensen-Shannon differences, um, Chi divergences, and, and then many others. And so then basically we, we uh, finally we proposed like a, an objective function that's, that's basically a combination of a softmax function, which allows you to have a, a valid probability distribution, then to apply different types of, of um, divergences, probability divergences um, uh, on top of that. And we found that that worked, that worked quite well. And in fact, we found that um, the Bhattacharya distance worked quite well. The what distance? So there's the there's this, it's called <laughs> it's called about the tire distance. It's quite well known. It's been used in many many fields. Um, I think it, it could be used more actually than it is right now. But but actually um, the KL average actually works also very well. We compared several ones and then we found that these two were pretty good. So in the case of uh, I'm trying to map this to like simple Gaussian type distributions where. Translating from one to the other is uh, related to kind of the mean and the variance. Uh, do those correspond to correspond one to one to terms in these different uh, these different functions? No. So these are very generic. So basically, so so these they're not necessarily some sort of generative model. For example, it's really you assume that you have for every every value you have in your distribution, you're assuming that. Um, you know, you know what the value is, right? So you have like probability of x um, one, probability of x two, etc. So that can that can be modeled, for example, with a GMM or with something else. But this is sort of agnostic to that. These types of distances. They're saying once you have some sort of probability distribution, um, this is this this distance is going to compute the difference between the two. But they can be modeled uh, differently. All right. And so, how do you use this ability to compute the distance between two distributions to help you uh, figure out attention? So what we start off with, so our ground truth can be converted into a probability distribution. And this is what we did. And we're not the first people to do this, but this is something that's, that's, that's very, um, that has been done before. So for example, you start off with a set of fixations. So you can consider it, you can consider that you have um, an image and you know the, you know, the XY coordinates of where somebody fixated on, on that image. Uh, is your data set consist of one image and a large number of captured fixations uh, from different observers based against that same image? Or do you have a, a bunch of images, each with their corresponding fixations? So both. So you, we have multiple images, ideally. In the beginning, we had very, we had very small data sets, but now we have pretty, pretty big ones. Um, so you have multiple images, and for each image, you have multiple um, sets of fixation. So basically, for example, you might have like an image and you ask like 10 people to take a look at the image, you know, during during a very small amount of time. So maybe like up to two seconds. And so then you capture these fixations. And normally what people do is they they um, apply like Gaussian blurring to that. So you can imagine you have like an image which is uh, full of zeros. And let's say you have like ones at the locations of the fixations. And then you can apply Gaussian blurring to this. And what you're going to get is you're going to get this, this resultant image, which is diffuse, right? So you have um, high values at the fixation points. And then these high values sort of diffuse in the immediate area of the fixation. So what you end up with is sort of like, um, it's, not a, it's not sort of like um, a binary image, but you have um, some diffuse attention around the regions of fixation with the, the modes being at the fixation points. And so this can be, what you have now is rather than have like 
uh, an image full of zeros with a few, you know, with just a few points where there's some support of the distribution. Now you've diffused a distribution where you have basically some amount of non-zero support at all points. And if you normalize this resultant image appropriately, um, you can consider this image to be a probability distribution. And so then this becomes your, your ground truth. And you just apply your typical machine learning framework and you say, okay, this is my ground truth. I have a model that uh, takes as, as input an image and produces some sort of predicted um, distribution. And then I compare the two using my probability distribution, um, my difference measure, and you backpropagate the, 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 the loss, right? You backpropagate the difference that you see. And so why is that uh, diffusion step uh, key here as opposed to uh, the more binary approach of looking at the fixations? It's, as we have a somewhat subjective process, it's it's a little bit too strict of a of um of a task to ask the model to predict exactly the fixation point because you could imagine that the user could have very easily um, looked elsewhere and you can actually see this right because if two if two observers are looking at the same image they're not going to look at the exact same point so therefore if you if you have a location so for example you have an image and there's um it's an image of that contains a face very likely there's going to be a ton of attention paid to the face. People like to look at faces, um, but they're not going to look at the same points. Not, not everybody's going to focus exactly on the eye, right? So if you have 10 people, you might see like a, like a distribution um, of fixations very much on the face. Um, but you can imagine very easily if you had like, like another person, if you had an 11th person that looked, they might look not exactly on that point, right? But they would look in the general area. So this is why it's nice to not use just the just the actual fixation that you have, but to sort of do this diffusion process where you um, you basically um, apply Gaussians to those regions and have this diffused distribution. And you're doing this diffusion process to each of your uh, fixation images, if you will, as opposed to after aggregating or averaging across the different fix fixations for a particular image? Exactly. I mean, there are many different ways to do this. <laughs> um, you can imagine, I right. think you can see that there are different choices, right? And none yeah. of them are, are exactly correct, right? Right, right. So, so in this case, we're trying to solve like a pseudo like a pseudo problem, like an adjacent problem, because we're not actually solving the exact one, right? Because this is this is where the subjectivity of it comes into into play. So yeah, there are different ways of doing it, um, and of course, there's there's when you're applying sort of this this Gaussian blurring, you know, there the Gaussian it's the Gaussian um, filter itself has its own parameters, right? So you have to decide how diffuse do you want it, this to be, and that itself is is a question that's sort of um, left up to the specific researcher. <laughs> And do you, uh, in that sense, do you, you, is it? It's not something you're learning. It's a hyperparameter that you're choosing uh, via experimentation. Uh it's it's um, it's not even a hyperparameter because this is really the ground truth you're setting at this point. So really, what many people have tried to do is to set this in a somewhat principled way by trying to look at things like um, like peripheral vision and trying to understand, okay, um, if someone actually fixates. What does that? How localized is that fixation really? And then mm. you can ha kind of have a measure on um, what sort of local region is really being attended to. Okay. And there's a lot of psychophysical studies on that, and that can that can inform um, how diffuse you want this to be. Uh, and so that's. Uh, are we just finishing up your your first work in this <laughs> in this field? It sounds like it. Yeah, <laughs> we have a few, we have a bit more to cover. So where'd you go next? 
you know, some of this work was done actually while I was uh, at XRC, now NLE. Some other work I've done um, while here is related to, as I said, learning visual representations. So I also did a fair bit of work on this once again before the deep learning era. So this was using um, handcrafted features and trying to understand how to how to learn embeddings in an effective way um, for different tasks. So things like fine grain recognition and also visual retrieval. So maybe I can start off with some of the work I did recently um, with colleagues from Enria and also colleagues here at NLE related to what we call um, aggregation. So this is also something that has become very well known in the deep learning context. Um, and what I mean by that in particular is, for example, um, what is something people very often refer to the same sort of principle as pooling. So, you know, for example, average like pooling, max pooling or max pooling, and... exactly. This is, this is quite well known, right? So this is basically saying you have some amount of, um, of it local information or maybe not, even not very localized information, and you want to be able to summarize it somehow, right? Um, and very often what you want to summarize might be different vectors. So let's say you have a set of vectors and you want to summarize them. So, for example, in the deep learning context, if you think of, um, of like a feature, like a hyper column, and you want to to summarize that in some way or to, let's say, compress the information, you might use max pooling or average pooling. Now, you refer to a feature as a hyper column, and I haven't heard that that reference before. Uh, what does that mean? So when I say hyper column, this is sort of, uh, it sounds a bit old school now. Um, it's it's a term that comes from from neuroscience once again, and it refers basically to, it's, it's what you might call this typical feature tensor that you, that you find in many confnets where you have, um, for example, you have an input image and you're applying different convolutions to it, very often you end up at some intermediate point with um, with, a feature, with multiple feature maps, right? So you have like a feature map of size like H prime, W prime, uh, and that's your feature map and you have multiple ones of them, right? Let's say you have D feature maps. So in the end, what you end up with is a tensor that's like D by H prime by W prime. And this um, has often been referred to as a hypercolumn. Okay. So that's in a deep learning context, but you can think of many contexts where you have feature vectors that you want to summarize in some way. Um, so for example, in my work, um, we worked a lot with what we call Fisher vectors. And so Fisher vectors are, um, it's a type of representation of, of um, a visual content, particularly used a lot with what we call local descriptors. And so it's a way of basically saying, okay, I have some local region of an image and I want to find um, some vector representation of that local region that's discriminative and, and compact, hopefully. Okay. And so imagine you have an image and you have a set of these descriptors um, that you extracted, let's say, for different regions of the image. And you say, okay, I have this image. I have, I don't know, like um, N of these descriptors. And I don't want N. I want like fewer. I want maybe one or I want two. So the idea is how do I go from that N to that much, much smaller number um, while not losing too much information? So this is like a fundamental problem um, that has been tackled in many ways. And so I've, I've done some work on how to construct these, what we call aggregated representations from a set of um, like a larger number of, of them. It sounds like, and, and you mentioned the term embedding previously, it sounds like you're creating some embedding space and then doing something akin to dimensionality reduction on that embedding space. So it's not quite in the sense that, in the sense that when people talk about dimensionality reduction, typically they mean that you have an embedding space, right? Mm -hmm. It can be in, um, let's say, D dimensions. So for example, I don't know, 2000 dimensions. And for, 
for dimensionality reduction, what you want to try to do is find some smaller dimensional space in which your embeddings live. So for example, I don't know, you might want to go down from 2000 dimensions to maybe 500 or, or 256 or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, in our case, what we're doing is we're not changing the embedding space, but we're just changing the amount of um, the amount of samples from that space. Let's say the amount of vectors that live in that space. So for example, rather than have... Um, let's say 1,000 vectors, each of size, each of dimension 2K, you might want to have only one. So this is what this aggregation is about. Is that a typical example going from uh, 2,000 to one? You can go even higher than that. You can go even higher than that. Yeah, so very often you might find on the order of anywhere from like 1,000 to 10,000 vectors that you want to reduce to just one vector. So you can see there that you can. See what is that doing for difficult. you? Yeah, what is that? Compression. What is... Compression. It's uh, you know, I you're reducing, I'm... you're reducing the size of your image representation by a factor of uh, of the number of descriptors that you have, if you go I... down to one. I guess if I'm thinking of it in the sense of compression, then certainly you know, we'd want to do that, uh, but you know. I would imagine there's a tremendous amount of loss in a scenario like that. Um, but in uh, when I think about it from the perspective of like an embedding space, I mean, I guess it's also lost. Like you just lose a ton of information. And so maybe I'm asking you to convince me that there's you're left with something of utility after you do this uh, 10,000 to one reduction. Sure. So you're, you're definitely right in the sense that they both um, – they have like a, an effect of compression, right? That's for sure. Mm-hmm. In one case, you're going to a smaller dimensional space. In another case, you're just reducing the amount of representations you have. In both cases, you're losing information, that's for sure. And this was the point of my work. So my work was really on on how to represent, um, how to to perform this aggregation while maintaining as much as possible, um, you know, as, as much information as you can in this aggregated representation. So what we proposed was a method called um, generalized max pooling, which aimed to 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 sort of maintain this property, um, and of course it's not perfect, but we found that it gave you know pretty pretty interesting results over other techniques, for example, like average pooling or max pooling. And so the the benefit there is is once again it's in terms of um, of compression, which is which is important. So in many applications you don't want you can't afford to store, for example, ten thousand descriptors to represent an image. To give an example, so we're very interested um, in my research center on the problem of image search, right? So that's let, let's say, for example, you have a database of images, let's say a billion images, right? And you have some image that you want to match to that. And you can think of many applications. You can think of, for example, shopping. Let's say you want to, to find us, you know, you have an image of like some kind of clothing item and you want to find in a huge, let's say, catalog by multiple retailers, anybody who has something similar or who has the exact same one. Um, if you have to, if you have to compute the similarity between that image and all the images in those in that database, and each image is represented by ten thousand vectors, each of which has a dimension of two thousand, it's going to take forever. Mm-hmm. It's not practical. So this is why very often people work on how do I get from ten thousand vectors to one or some smaller number, somewhat smaller number. So this is really the utility there. It's a compress it's a compression utility. You mentioned this the this algorithm is a generalized max pooling. Are you 
taking kind of an off the shelf uh, CNN architecture, ResNet, for example, and kind of swapping out, you know, wherever it says max pooling with this generalized max pooling and maybe chopping off the last layer, your classifier, and that's creating your vectors, or is it more involved than that? So, so that that would make sense. That's a good guess, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> But actually, and this is this is something that could technically be done. But actually, what we think of this is something that's very generic. So it's actually not related to deep to to. It's not specific to deep architectures. It's very generic in the sense that we are trying to solve the problem where we have a set of vectors and we want to reduce. We want to aggregate them in some way, and so that can involve. Um, features extracted by deep networks. So let's say, for example, you have a deep network, and at some point you have. Um, this hypercolumn I talked about, you have this feature tensor and you want to pool it in some way, you want to aggregate it. So you can think of um, generalized max pooling in this scenario as an alternative to max pooling or, or average pooling, but you can also have other descriptors, right? So um, you can have descriptors that are, that are handcrafted or, or come from many different, you know, many different things you can think of. It, it's more presented as a, a fundamental operation you can apply to a set of vectors to aggregate them as opposed to something that's specifically used in the context of uh, a deep learning model. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, in the original work, we didn't, we didn't apply it on deep learning, although it's been subsequently used um, for deep with deep models in combination. And so you've spent this time on the, the visual attention side. It sounds like that was a bit earlier in your, uh, your research. More recently, you're working on learning these representations. You know, where do you, where are you headed? What, what's uh, what's kind of interesting for you nowadays? Uh, and where are you investing your resources uh, in terms of future research? Sure. So actually, uh, you know, everything sort of all becomes new again. So <laughs> actually, <laughs> I'm doing some work now on, on both things at the same time, because as you mentioned very presciently before, um, attention is a it's, it's used everywhere, right, in, in deep learning right now, in many things. So actually, right now, some of the, the, the work I'm really involved in at the moment involves how to learn representations using deep learning um, with in attention in, involved as well. So meaning how do you use some sort of attention mechanisms um, in order to pay attention <laughs> to regions of an image that, you know, you really need to focus on in order to solve your task. Right, so this is where once again the this is like the overlap between the two views, let's say, of attention, mm -hmm. because because once again, there's limited processing power. There's a lot of information images, and so it's it's it pays to to really only spend time um, computing over data that's that's valuable, and then not only that, but it also can be considered some sort of some sort of cleaning mechanism, for example, because you can have a lot of things that that you can just that might be in, important but it can also be just distracting and can be considered clutter basically so let's say for example you're doing um, once again let's let's look at the fashion example let's say you want to train to learn a representation for for visual search right let's use my previous example um, and you want to search for um, you know you're looking for shirts if you have if you have an image there are many parts of the image are just not going to help you find you know, whether these two images match, right? Whether they both have the same shirt. So you might want to only attend to the regions of the image that are relevant for that. So of course, like if there, if you might want to pay attention to the upper body of the person, so you might want to be able to find, okay, where is the upper body of this person? Because this is where I'm going to really be able to tell if 
there is a shirt in the image, and if so, if it's the same shirt, if it's the shirt I'm looking for. Now, there might be other parts of the image that are also useful for that. Um, so maybe, for example, if I find the head, I might have a better chance of finding the body. But there are many parts that may not be, right? So what I'm focused on right now is how to how to incorporate different models of saliency or let's say different ways of, of attending to regions so that, you know, you can simplify these tasks um, of learning rep representations for search. Nyla, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's really interesting work and uh, I'm excited to get to learn a bit about what you're up to. Thanks so much, Sam. It was really great to have this conversation. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Nyla or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 190. For more information on the entire Deep Learning Indaba podcast series, visit twimlai.com slash indaba2018. Thanks again to Google for their sponsorship of this series. Be sure to check out the 2019 AI Residency Program at g.co slash AI Residency. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. Yeah.